Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back to the Conservative Review podcast here at Conservative Review's Northern Command in the rat hole of Baltimore, Maryland. It is July 30th, Tuesday. Lots going on, lots to talk about. And indeed, we don't just focus on the soap opera here. We don't just focus on the president's tweets. We want presidential touchdowns. We want the president to throw a pass, get it beyond the goal line, not just spew rhetoric. It's nice to combat the liberals. It's nice that he's willing to call them out on things that other people aren't. But look, if it's only going to be a tweet, but then the president himself, along with his own party, does some of the same things the Democrats do or continues to allow the deep state, the shallow state, Congress, the courts to continue the Democrats' legacy inexorably marching us towards socialism, towards open borders, towards lack of sovereignty, security, breakdown of civil society, then what's the point? So that's what we're here to do at the Conservative Review, to go and literally review down the line the things that are going on in the courts, the things that are going on in Congress, the things that are going on in the executive agencies to see Are we getting conservative outcomes? Are we getting outcomes that are frankly better for all Americans? And yesterday we praised the president for speaking the truth about my hometown, Baltimore, Maryland. And I totally agree with everything he said. But the important point to remember is Jared Kushner and some of these leftist Koch brother fools in this White House are getting the president to implement on a federal level a lot of the Baltimore policies. And then as we mentioned yesterday, what's embodied in Baltimore is going to expand to the entire country if we continue to allow our border to remain open, which is something I want to really dissect today. I want to give you a briefing on the latest that I'm hearing from my friends at at Border Patrol, at ICE, uh, some of the political appointees uh, in the administration. What I'm hearing is going on And where we're making progress and where we are still taking two steps backwards. One of the things I noticed just happened now. It was uh, one one of the networks. This was Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan. She said, Baltimore is an American city. And for a sitting president of the United States to attack an American city this way has to be unconscionable. It's unconscionable. Now, I was thinking, this is awesome. We now have a Democrat saying they care about an American city. I mean, I thought they only cared about Guatemala. So it's good to know that it takes Baltimore to get these people to finally care about an American city. But somehow, outside of that context, we don't care. Here is the nightmare scenario that I fear for the next two, six years. Democrats are so extreme and social media, the advent of social media is making them even more extreme than imaginable because they have this confirmation bias. Arthur Brooks, he's the president of the American Enterprise Institute. He put out uh, an op-ed in the Washington Post and he noted that only 22% of U.S. adults use Twitter and then 80% of those people 
or I'm sorry, 10% of those people account for 80% of all of all of the tweets. So in other words, what you see on Twitter is really 2.2% of the adult population. So the Democrats make the mistake by taking a look at those sentiments and they think that that is America. Hence, their defense of Baltimore, their defense of the Al Sharpton, where you know your average swing voter is going to be appalled by that. So they lurch even further to the left. But then the problem is the further to the left they lurch, the easier it is for Trump and Republicans to kind of superficially, rhetorically combat that, all the while leaving the policies on autopilot where the left is winning on all the policies or one level less to the left that they want to go. But the conservative base is still satisfied with just the rhetoric, with Trump telegraphing his punches, but not actually punching and often in terms of policy outcomes, actually doing the opposite of what he says. And there's nobody to hold him accountable. That is my concern. That is my concern coming up tonight with this Democrat debate, which, by the way, I am not watching. I got to get to bed early. Uh, Last night, my four-year-old kind of reverted back to his infant days and was up three times screaming his head off. So I'm a little bit uh, low energy today, kind of like Jeb Bush. But um, I have no desire to stay up and watch that. But somehow my colleagues, they come to life when it comes to focusing on Democrats. But let me tell you something. Every hour of every day with Republicans in control of the executive branch, with Republicans in control of the Senate, there is a Republican debate taking place. But many of my colleagues in this industry are completely MIA. I can't influence as a conservative where the Democrats go, but I can influence where Republicans go and pressure them to actually combat what they claim they don't like from the Democrats, but then ultimately acquiesce to, to combat it in a meaningful way. That is our challenge. That's the challenge of our time. So when I watch what the Democrats are doing, and I see that when it comes to the actual plays on the field, we might have the loudspeaker, the microphone in our hand, and you know, yelping all sorts of things at, at the Democrats and Trump's the one with the big microphone. But on the actual yard, on the, on the playing field, the touchdowns are being thrown by the Democrats. So before we go on to immigration, what is going on, what we're accomplishing, what we're not accomplishing, and what we need a conservative movement and Fox News and some of these other um, shows that claim to have a monopoly on conservative thought, what we need them to focus on. I just want to finish off one point from yesterday's show from, um, you know, the whole Baltimore jailbreak business. Part of what makes Baltimore a hellhole is that Baltimore is really the test run for criminal justice reform. Okay, criminal justice reform. Now, that's elite speak for. We don't believe in people serving jail time. Okay, that, that's basically what it is. So, Mr. President, if you want to convert your tweets about Baltimore to policy touchdowns, go and support where 60-70% of the public are and get tougher on crime, not weaker. But he has Jared Kushner, 
Kim Kardashian's fat rear end and whatever other Jay-Z or whatever these um, rappers are that, that seem to have more influence on the White House than conservatives like myself pushed him to commute or pardon another seven people. Drug traffickers yesterday. And a lot of people look at them like, eh, Daniel, these are light things. Why are they serving so long in prison? And like we say all the time, read the sentencing report. Read that sentencing report, which is unfortunately a sealed document, and the media will never pressure these um, inmates to release them. They report on their sob stories about them serving long jail sentences, first-time low-level offenders. And I looked at one of these guys, and it says he was convicted for trafficking spice. This is the synthetic marijuana. Now, that doesn't sound like a big deal. But if you understand the issue, and if you were an old-time listener to the show, last year we had on Derek Maltz, the former longtime serving uh, um, head of the Special Operations Division of the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, and he opened our eyes to this, and you see this every, every week in the news, that synthetic marijuana being sold now is being laced with rat poison. So you had last year 30, 40 kids just drop in a New Haven, Connecticut park, hemorrhaging. Um, It happened in Washington, D.C. It happened all over the country. And unlike most drug trafficking, which is done by, uh, you know, usually you look at the names of those indicted and they're Hispanic sounding names because they're tied to the Mexican cartels. This particular sphere of drug trafficking is actually Yemeni and Jordanian nationals. And this name that that I saw appeared to be an Arab-sounding name. And there is a lot of evidence that's funding terrorism. There's a lot more going on to this. But these are the people Trump is letting go. I'm seeing one week on crime policy after another from this White House. I'm not seeing the policies to get tougher on all the loopholes that allow violent criminals to get released. So again, Mr. President... Like, I get it. You're right about Baltimore. You're more right than you even understand. But then you're replicating some of those very policies and you're listening to some of the very swamp people that you promised to vanquish. What gives? That's what we're here to do because, heck, no one else is going to focus on it. So in that vein, I want to move on to immigration. So on the surface, we've seen a lot of good news over the, over, over the last couple of days, over the weekend. I know I didn't get a chance to talk about this yesterday. I promise I'd give you my analysis on it. Trump signed in the Oval Office on Friday with a top Guatemala minister this third-party asylum agreement, this deal with, um, with the Guatemalan government. and. Let me tell you something. This deal is kind of a big question mark. I'm not sure what to make of it. I really don't know what to make of it. On the one hand, he signed a piece of paper, but it's unclear if there is a definitive deal in place. Okay? Is this just a notice of intent to forge a deal? Again, We've seen this very often where the president tweets something out. There's a lot of pomp behind something, but then the the bad policies continue. And I want to take yes for an answer when the president listens to some of the things we finally, we've suggested he finally listens to them. But on the other hand, I want to make sure we see them through, that they're actually implemented. 
Because I could tell you from the agents I speak to on the ground, no policy changes have actually been implemented. They are still letting them all in. Now, I know McAleenan, the acting DHS secretary, said that he's going to change this in August, so it's not August yet. But we have to make sure this is something that's enduring. So if this is indeed enduring, which we're going to find out in the, in the coming days, let me first explain why I think it's significant. But then two caveats, two questions we need to ask. And based on the answer to those two questions, it's going to determine whether this is business as usual or things are indeed going to change. So right off the bat, right off the bat, I want to note that if indeed Guatemala would agree to take all of the asylees, so this would be a game changer. Because Guatemala is the choke point for all migration coming northward. Anyone coming from Central America or South America, a lot are coming from Venezuela, from Brazil, they're going to have to go to Guatemala. People coming from Cuba, Haiti, also the African countries, they ultimately have to get into Guatemala. I mean, until they start landing on the beaches of Mexico, but that hasn't been done yet. So if they were all to be stopped there, that would end all of it, except for those who are actually from Guatemala. Now, that's one question mark we do have here, which is, did the president cut some sort of deal to let in more Guatemalans in return for them holding back others? Uh, Reuters or... No, was it um, AP, AP or Reuters? I'm not sure which uh, publication, but it was reported that there was some sort of promise to give them more agriculture visas. So that's something we got to watch out for. But mo- most of the migration now is coming from Honduras, actually, not Guatemala, and then you know other countries. So it would be significant if they agreed that they're now responsible for the asylum. Now, the liberal media is all over this. They're saying, oh, my gosh, Guatemala is not um, equipped to deal with this. You, you, how are they going to take all these asylees? It's a joke. They're not asylees. They're scamming our system. So they just want to come to America. Once you tell them they can't come to America and they'd have to apply in Guatemala, guess what? They're not going to go to Guatemala. They're not going to go at all. So that whole issue is a joke. But there's two questions. What about the courts? And will they be turned back? Let's deal with the second one first. So they have to apply in in Guatemala. And if they don't apply, then they'll be removed. Well, what does that mean? So they come to the border. Then what? Are we going to finally enforce our sovereignty and turn them back and say, go straight back through where you came? Or are we going to hold them until we could deport them? If it's the latter, nothing is going to change. Because once you hold them, well, you got to find planes to deport them. And right now, we don't even have enough planes to deport the single adults, much less the family units. And then after 20 days, they're following this bogus Flores policy that you have to release them. So if you don't hold the line at the river itself, at the Rio Grande River, and turn them back, as they should have been doing for a year, it's not going to change. I'm suspicious that they're actually going to do that. We have to make sure they do that. But don't assume they're going to do that. As conservatives, we need to raise our voices and ensure that they do that. 
Number two, if you go to 8 U.S.C. 1158, one of the significant purposes to forging a third-party country asylum deal with Guatemala is to kick the courts out of it. This whole issue is created by the courts. The courts, the, the laws are not the problem. And I hate when the president tweets about, oh, our terrible laws. The laws aren't the problem. The courts are flipping them on, on, on its head. So the courts caused the problem. 1158, if you go to section 1158, you just scroll down, it's um, A2, I believe. Uh, it, it's towards the top of that title. It says that any third-party agreement is absolutely unreviewable by the courts. The courts have no jurisdiction over it. Here's the problem, folks. The courts have decided to review these cases anyway. There's about five instances we've documented where Congress has explicitly stripped the courts of jurisdiction and the courts hear the cases and the executive branch, rather than enforcing the law against the judicial usurpation, just totally, yes, judge, whatever you say, no separation of powers. If they're going to continue to do the same, then what's the point? So I have not heard them say this, but if they want to get out ahead of it, they need to call their shot. And Trump's attorney general needs to give a speech and say, statute 1158 says, this is completely unreviewable. We have an agreement. We will not indulge any lawsuit. We will not file any briefs in defense of it. We will not send people down to San Francisco to their stupid California judge that they shopped this to. It is null and void. They have no jurisdiction because otherwise there's no rule of law. We swore an oath to the Constitution, to enforce the laws. These are the laws. And we're not going to go through this judicial usurpation. Look, another piece of good news is that over the weekend, a judge, five justices on the Supreme Court threw out the lawsuit and overturned the district judge, this uh, guy in San Francisco, as well as the Ninth Circuit, saying the president cannot use defense funding to fund the border. And the court just said very simply in one sentence, basically, that how does the Sierra Club get standing to sue reprogrammed defense contracts? They're not defense contractors. The last time I checked, where's the standing? But here's the problem. We see the Supreme Court over, totally overturns, not just on the merits, but even more foundationally, that the courts don't have the power to hear these cases. Yet they keep coming back for more. And sometimes it takes a year or two. This case was quicker, but usually it takes a year or two to even get to the Supreme Court. We cannot have a year or two of irrevocable harm at our border because of these very district judges that we know are going to be slapped down by the Supreme Court. At some point, the the executive branch needs to assert their own separation of powers. And until they do that, this is meaningless. So this is something we're going to be watching. But anyway, as of now, the border is not getting better. The numbers are slightly down from the crazy peak of May where you had the large groups because the Mexican military has broken up the large groups, but they're just coming in smaller groups, 30s and 40s rather than groups of 100 and 200, 300. And it's as bad as ever before. Just today, we posted an article that the Rio Grande Valley, which is the worst area of the border, the far east of Texas, about 320 miles of winding riverbeds that are very hard to patrol. The Gulf Cartel, mainly the Gulf Cartel, 
has a strategic control over all of the areas. 301,000 apprehensions so far this year with two more months to the fiscal year. We set an all-time record since Border Patrol started keeping records. The most apprehended. The previous record was the first iteration of the Central American crisis in 2014. It was about 256,000. 1997 was about 246,000. We blew that out with two months left. So we're probably going to come close to 400,000 just in one border sector. Now, let me tell you something, folks. These are just the guys we that surrender. But we have eight border agents on the line at any given moment for 60, per 60 miles in that area. How many are getting through? Every day, several thousand get through. Or at least 1,000, sometimes several thousand in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, based on the information I'm getting from the sensors, the cameras, the um, the blimps that they fly over, the aerostat, uh, they, and then the footprints. They count the footprints. These are sex offenders. These are previously deported murderers, gang members, cartel traffickers. You never see them until they show up in our cities and commit crime, and then it's never reported as a border-oriented crime, it's reported as regular domestic crime. You know, we had Sheriff Mark Lamb from Pinal County on our show yesterday. He's not even on the border. He's 70 miles removed from it in Arizona. And uh, guess what? He says he sees these guys every day. And often they have to call, they call 911. The people trafficking the drugs and the bad people Get into trouble in the desert, call 911, and his county EMTs, police, and hospitals have to pay for the cost. Talk about paying for the rope to hang ourselves with. See, this is what nobody is asking about. You know, 301,000 apprehensions at the Rio Grande Valley, 20,000 hours of hospital um, runs from Border Patrol. Who's paying for this? Where is Congress talking about who's paying for this? And no, Congress, you know, the House is out until Labor Day. The Senate is going to be out in two days. They're holding the first vote on that budget bill, which is going to go to the president. Where is the conservative movement holding this president accountable and saying, you need to veto this bill and call on Congress to come back in session and have a bill that funds the border wall, that funds ICE de- uh, detention space and, and ICE deportations? Because guess what's happening? There's a dirty little secret. Remember we, we talked about the fact that the media and the political class are keeping secret crime, illegal alien crime, and, and every day Americans are, are murdered, raped, killed in DUIs from illegal aliens, and we barely scrape the surface. We try to report on the ones we see. This happened... It didn't come out till last week, but this was the week before in Boaz, Alabama. Um, this is Marshall County. Rural Alabama is now a border county. A man discovered to be in the country illegally was arrested in Boaz and charged with sexually abusing a child. On Thursday, July 8th, Boaz police arrested Felipe Juan Miguel, who was living in Boaz. He was arrested around 8 or 9 p.m. And... 
they basically say that the victim know that the victim and the perpetrator know each other. I'm, I'm going to get to that in a minute. And they say here that this man came from Guatemala three months ago. Here's what I'm hearing. I'm hearing that this man came to the California border. Most are actually coming to Texas, but this guy came in California sometime in the spring. He came in with one child, but he was designated as a family unit. By the way, you know, when they talk about family units, you think like a mother, a father, and five, seven children because they have a lot of children. It's usually one mother, one father, and one child. Gee, I thought you're fleeing poverty. I mean, I thought you're fleeing fleeing, uh, persecution. No, it's a scam. The perfect loophole. And sometimes you'll have, um, let's say there's more than more kids. So they'll have the father take one kid and the mother, let's say, take two kids. See, because if the mother and father come in together with the whole family unit, then we'll still prosecute the father because the kids are still with the mother. You're not, God forbid, violating the constitutional, um, you know, the, an, an invisible ink. It says in the Constitution, you cannot prosecute a foreign invader for committing a crime because that will result in a separation from their kids. Even though American criminals are, obviously are separated, but um, folks, this is the poster child. What I'm hearing is this kid that was being abused was the very kid this guy used as his golden ticket to the border. So talk about that as sympathy and compassion and humanitarian. We are creating a policy that, that allures these people to come in, take a kid, whether it's theirs, whether it's not. And let me tell you something. There's a dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about, but we're going to talk about on this show. There is an epidemic of child sex abuse all over the place in Central America. It's part of the culture. This guy, you could tell, um, I saw a picture of him. Most of them aren't Spanish, by the way. They are Mayan or one of the Indian tribes in the rural areas of of Guatemala. In this case, it was Guatemalan. A lot of them don't even speak Spanish. In their culture, as soon as a girl reaches 12 years old, let's just say they get pregnant. And it's funny, the media is willing to talk about this in a different context. When they talk about tons of pregnant teens coming to the border and how we need to let them in and care for them in the hospital and then give them citizenship against the will of our citizenry, this erroneous stealing of our birthright by illegal aliens. We've written many articles how it's not in the Constitution. It's not even in the Wong Kim Ark court decision. Wong Kim Ark in 1898 said explicitly, you have to be permitted to reside here. It's only a a legal permanent resident that gets birthright citizenship. Even if you believe it's in the Constitution, which it's not, it cannot be for someone who unilaterally asserts jurisdiction because um, it's as if they're outside of our boundary. The courts have said that for 130 years. I don't know why Trump has not followed through with that. Because that is a huge magnet, huge magnet. I mean, what do we have here? This is from last week from NBC News in Tijuana. Expected moms hope for U.S. asylum. A growing number of expected uh, mothers are among the migrants coming to coming in daily from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, El Salvador even Haiti, to more than thirty already overflowing shelters in Tijuana. And whatever. I mean, I'm not going to bore you with it, but you can look it up. Tijuana NBC last week. This is a huge magnet. 
They're not coming for persecution, fleeing persecution. They're not asylees. They're coming for anchor babies. And again, no one's asking. AUSC 1182 has a whole group of inadmissibilities. A1 is um, health concerns. So all these people are inadmissible because they don't have documentation of vaccines as required in 1182A1. A2 is criminals. The fact that they're enabling criminals to get in, that also we should shut it down. Just on that account alone. And then you go on to four and five are those who, four I believe is those who seek entry and are going to likely to become a public charge. That is every one of them. And you have to take in your education, your job status, your um, your age. They're inadmissible. Turn them back. It's the law. I just don't understand why it's not enforced. Legal, if you, if you apply legally, you're inadmissible. Why, if you come here to the border and try to sneak in and infiltrate our country, are you somehow better off by empowering cartels to, to screw us? You should, be, you should be worse off. So we're not enforcing that. Nobody's asking who is paying for this. All of the polls show that the American people don't want to pay for this. Why is Trump not forcing the Senate back into session and saying we're not paying for this in the budget bill? Instead, he is endorsing the stupid budget bill. C- come on. I mean, I, I understand him, but we got to get his tweets to be converted to actual policy touchdowns. But anyway, there's this epidemic. Everyone knows, you know, a border agent mentioned this to me. He said, notice all these people coming um, and they're pregnant, right? And you have teen pregnancies all over the place, right? That was the original court case uh, where the D.C. Circuit said there's now a right for illegals to force us to drive them to abortion clinics. That was a case of a teen. So no one's asking the following question. Let me just read to you a comment a border agent sent me. So here's the deal. If you have a bunch of 13, 14, 15-year-olds who are pregnant, well, they had to have had sex with someone. So that means that there are men in Central America that do that. Now, let me tell you something. There is a rash of criminals coming in. Drug traffickers, drunk drivers, murderers, all sorts of problems. But when it comes to child sex offenders, you're not missing anything when you see press releases from Border Patrol every day that they catch, you know, people that were convicted of sex offenses in America trying to come back in, or every day we report on things in the interior, the ones we can find, of people arrested for sex offenses, um, and it turns out they're illegal aliens. Just in 30 of the 100 North Carolina counties, just over 18 months, Almost 1,200 sexual assault charges on minors from illegal aliens. 30 counties of one state. So this isn't just, oh, there's a lot of criminals. There's a culture that we are importing. There's a culture we are importing that condones this. This is what they do. Not all of them, but a heck of a lot of them, particularly from the areas that they're coming. Here's, a, here's from a border agent who, who told me this. He says, as it stands right now, if a father crosses illegally with his daughter that is 14 or older, we have to separate and hold them in different detention areas because of the rampant molestation cases. And most of the time, we don't even know if the father is really who he says he is 
or what his relationship was with the child before he crossed illegally. It is sad to see an abundant amount of 14 and 15-year-old pregnant children crossing illegally, oftentimes by themselves. Where is the man or the boy? See, the media, even the media is reporting about the teen pregnancies, but no one's kind of connecting the dots. Oh, so that means there's this rampant culture. And again, if you go to these NGOs that aren't even conservative, but that want to fight, um, I forget, there's an organization, uh, Children Not Brides or something. There's a website, you could look it up, that documents this, and you could search by country, and you'll see. They, they're they open about the problems in Guatemala. Um, this, my friends, is what we're importing into this country. The American people don't want it. Not, it's not just a conservative issue. It's just the elites who want it. The president kind of touches on it, but then the policy outcomes, the budget bills he signs, the policies of DHS, the court opinions that are completely illegal that he doesn't push back against, make sure that we're continuing the very policies he says he's against. Whatever happened to that anchor baby executive order? It's been about... 10 months since he's he's talked about it? Eight months? I think it was last fall. Where is it? So this is the problem there. You know, I just want to say, what else are we bringing in culturally here? This is from the LA Times last week. Many of you will remember um, California police and FBI just uh, arrested 22 very young, you know, ranging from like 16 to 22-year-old MS-13 members who recently came into the country in this border flow. And they were involved in in a whole bunch of gruesome murders that the prosecutors called medieval-style murders. And uh, the LA Times reported on the school that many of them attended. This is Panorama High School, in the San Fernandino, um, San Fernando Valley, not San Bernardino, San Fernando Valley is farther south. And they, they just, I'm just going to read to you some of this. A sixth juvenile defendant arrested during that ocu- operation has been charged with murder in the April 2017 killing of 20 year old German Ocheo Berrios, whose body was discovered in the Angeles National Forest with multiple, multiple stab, stab wounds. One or more of the Panorama students was also linked to the killing of Ocheo Perrios. And uh, the rest of the students were likely accomplices in additional crimes, according to prosecutors. The seven gruesome slayings linked to the Fulton clique of MS-13 span more than two years, according to a federal indictment unsealed last week that named and charged 22 adults. All are alleged to be members and associates of MS-13, Hayes said the juvenile cases are separate and are largely being handled by state rather than federal prosecutors. Lovely. So in other words, they'll be out on the streets uh, very soon in California. Um, Panorama High sits on a busy stretch of Van Van Nuys Boulevard in Panorama City, a working class neighborhood in the San Fernandino Valley. Uh, The neighborhood has long been a home to recent immigrants from Latin America. Now, I want to read to you this line. Nearly 91% of Panorama high, high School students entered school as children with limited English skills. Even in high school, about 30% remain in classes for non-native speakers. Who's paying for this? But moreover, 
more than the fiscal problem, there's the security and cultural problem blending together. When you bring in carte blanche, violent youth from violent countries, and you just plop them in together and just have a whole school for them, what do you think you're going to have? And I mean, the, the article goes on to just detail how the school is infested with MS-13. Why is nobody in Congress on the Republican side, nobody in the administration aggressively talking about this? Why are too few of my colleagues in conservative media aggressively talking about this? So we need policy outcomes on crime, on immigration, on spending. What is going on here? I just don't get it. I just don't get it. You know, I think to the fact that every day the cartels are flowing illegal immigrants, gangs, drugs, previously deported criminals by the tens of thousands into our border. Name me one foreign enemy that is that consequentially devastating to this country. I mean, I'm a big hawk on Islamic terror, but they, they can't hold a candle to the Mexican cartels. Yet we will not use our military in a meaningful way at the border. We had the sheriff, you know, from Pinal County on our show yesterday saying how they're 70 miles into our border with scouts on our own mountaintops directing their operations. And yet we have our soldiers in where? Afghanistan. So let me read to you. The cigar report came out for the latest quarter. Now, um... Cigar, as you well know, is uh, not a cigarette. It's, it's an acronym for the Special Inspector, Inspector General of the Afghani Reconstruction, Afghanistan Reconstruction. And they noted how, you know, we've spent over $140 billion reconstructing that hellhole, which is enmeshed in a 1,300-year tribal warfare. It doesn't pose a threat to us. Well, unless we go to war there and then get our soldier, soldiers killed and then bring in 150,000 immigrants from there, which we've done, by the way. Two more Somali refugees were arrested in Tucson for on, on terrorism charges. This happens every day. We let in so many of these people, but that's a different story. But anyway, the latest report shows that the Pentagon spent $18 billion in taxpayer money on weapons for Afghan forces, providing 600,000 weapons, 70,000 vehicles, and more than 200 aircraft. Despite the large price tag, is the Washington Examiner, Russ Reed, despite the large price tag, the program's mismanagement has had a negative effect on the battlefield. I want to read to you something I wrote a couple days ago, a couple uh, weeks ago. It would be tragic enough to continue this ill-fated operation if all was good at our home front, and we had the luxury of callously expending our lives and money on refereeing a 1,300-year tribal war across the world. But the sad reality is that we have drug cartels, mass migration, transnational gangs pouring over our border. That is precisely where we need our military. And no, not just to serve as bus drivers and cooks. That's what they're serving is, by the way. And by the way, if we're going to use them to transport the illegals from station to station and release them into our country, why can't we use them to then 
deport them. Right now, they don't have enough commercial airliners to deport. Why aren't they using military aircraft? That's a whole other issue. Because you have a lot of Air Force bases that are at the border. But anyway, I go on. Look at the twisted priority of how we had, of how hard we worked to secure the sovereignty of an undefined and unworthy foreign government from enemies that are similar to the ones on our border, which we ignore. According to uh, a new Fox News report, the elite task force ODIN observe, detect, identify, neutralize has been deployed there with a complex mix of interwoven variables to include network drones, fixed wing intelligence aircraft and helicopters, coordinating real time video feeds with target analysis and aircraft mounted electro optical sensors. Their job is to, quote, find and destroy enemy targets and weapons in the austere mountainous terrain of a war weary country. The operation was described as extremely active and successful. Hmm. Seems like a shame to have to go all the way to Afghanistan to do that stuff. Where else might we have a mission just like that? Waiting for a task force ODIN. Any ideas, folks? Rugged terrain? International borders? Paramilitary militias? Narco-terrorists? I'm drawing a blank. Well, if you think of it, let the Pentagon know. The president promised to end this garbage. And I know he hates it and he complains about it. It's still going on. Yesterday, I don't think the names were released or more information. But two more members of the 82nd Airborne Division were killed. Died for nothing. For what? And yet we won't use them at the border. The cartels cross in plain sight of, of the military active duty and National Guard because they know that we have policies in place where we will not allow them to interdict them. And you know what's ironic? I said this before. I said, look, you can't tell me it's, pos- it's a violation of posse comitatus using the military to enforce domestic law to literally hold them at the borderline to repel an invasion. That is why we have a military, not to be in Afghanistan. Posse comitatus was signed by President Grant in the 1870s, so you don't have the military enforcing reconstruction laws on the southern states and just beating up people domestically. Ironically, they're actually getting hit now. The media is saying Trump's violating posse comitatus because they're in the detention centers kind of dealing with the humanitarian. So I'm like, dude, this is another example of how you do a half-assed policy and then you get hit by the left even more and I, I don't agree it violates posse comitatus if it's at the border, but it actually is closer to that because you're dealing with humanitarian, the detention facilities. No, put the military on the line and use their special operators to go after, um, go after the cartels. Hold the line. Don't let anyone in. Turn everyone back. That is why we have a, 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 a military. Ironically, all these escapades we have overseas our founders would have believed you need congressional authorization to, uh, of use of force. You need a declaration of war. Ironically, this is the one thing that the president could do without Congress because it's repelling an invasion. George Washington talked about that as opposed to an, um, a, uh, you know, an expeditionary force that goes and, and goes overseas. Everyone's like, Daniel, could we use the military at our border? Oh, gee, I don't know. 
Yeah, I don't know why we have a military. But this is the point. Nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. This is just so frustrating. We're letting in so much garbage into this country. I get so many emails, and, and you can email me at dhorowitz at blazemina.com. A lot of people that they don't quite like Trump's personality, they don't like his lack of presidential delivery, but they agree on the policies. And I've had people say, I'm, li- I'm a lifelong Democrat, but if the president would actually stop the tweeting, but actually accomplish shutting down the legal immigration, I'd vote for him. These are Democrats. The American people don't want this. Three to one, this is the top issue, according to a new poll by the Heritage Foundation. Gallup has similar polling. Harvard-Harris similar polling came out in July. It's the top issue. The public charge, the crime, people don't want it. Yet the president is giving Congress a free pass, giving the Democrats their budget caps, and that's it. Where's the leverage? Where is the leverage? Look, as always, we left so much on the table, literally here. I left a lot in my my stack of notes. Um, But go to Conservative Review. Look at all of our articles. I'm going to try to hit some of the stuff I didn't get a chance to focus on the show. Um, There is some news on healthcare I want to get to. There's a lot more going on at the border, the mechanics of what's going on. Um, We're going to give you firsthand accounts from border agents. Their stories that are not you know, frankly, given over by other conservative media. We're going to be a voice for victims of crime, victims of illegal immigration, law enforcement, the forgotten American taxpayer. Why not have a taxpayer bill of rights, an agenda? You know, I I maybe we'll do this sometime this week. I'll I'll read from it. Last year, I crafted um, about 15 months ago, a contract, a new contract with America, a taxpayer bill of rights. For consumers, American taxpayers and consumers. I gave it over to certain Freedom Caucus members to try to push. And I said, you're going to lose that midterm election if you don't have your own agenda. You don't have to oppose Trump. You don't have to support him. Have your own conservative agenda that stands on its own two legs and the president will follow. But if you don't lead, he's going to drift on you. And he's going to distract with his tweets. But again, my concern is not necessarily that he's going to lose the election. My concern is the Democrats are so radical because of their own confirmation bias in social media that once you have a candidate that is, see right now the polling shows, you know, Biden's way ahead of the president and other candidates are kind of neck and neck. But once you would have a specific candidate, it's not just a generic opposition to Trump. People are going to be like, oh, my gosh, I don't want that guy. That's that's what happened with Hillary. So there's no doubt that the president can win, just like he beat Hillary. I do think we're going to see that. But what is winning? What does the next six years, what do the next six years look like? What do the next two years look like? We need to reach a point where we actually are going to make some sort of a difference. And that's what we're here to do. Go to our YouTube page at conservativereview.com. Well, our website at conservativereview.com, but make sure you ring the bell at the YouTube page. Like us, um, give us a thumbs up because we got to get the truth out. And that's that's what we're going to do every day this week. Thank you for listening. We are loving this new format. This has been another episode of the Conservative Review Podcast.